Thank you very much. That's a new song. I've not heard that one. Alan, that was a new one to me. So, was that new to you too? Yeah, that's great. Really cool. Um, very profound. Oh, that's the wrong one. Uh, several weeks ago, we were um, we, before the service. We pray outside in the um, in that little area around there. And if you're ever here earlier than sort of ten o'clock, then that is not a holy huddle. That's for anyone to come and pray. So please do come and pray with us. Um, but as we were, were praying there, it was a lovely sunny day, and um, I, through the door, and I've been feeling it this morning. You kind of get this fresh breeze that comes through, and I really felt the Lord saying that he wanted to bring something of a fresh, fresh wind, um, uh, a breath of life, uh, kind of a stirring of the leaves, a sort of a newness. And so it's kind of with that that I'm, I'm kind of moving forward with uh, what I'm going to be saying this morning. So uh, we're going to start somewhere... Um, with uh, this very familiar text, which Chris is going to put up for us. Um, so, strange, but interesting. I'll put it into context. So, Jesus has been teaching and ministering, and late one night, uh, a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders of a particular group of religious leaders called the Pharisees, who were trying to work out who this Jesus guy was, and who were like, some were dead against Jesus, others were kind of sitting on the fence. And one of these guys who was sitting on the fence is a guy called Nicodemus. And he came to see Jesus and basically say, who are you? What are you about? And um, the odd thing is, Jesus doesn't appear to give him a straight answer. Not to me anyway. Not when you first read it. Um, he says this. Um, I'm just going to go back to verse... Can we go back to verse 5 as well? Sorry, Chris. Verse 5. Unless... He, he says, he, first of all, he says this thing, a very strange thing. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? I've already been born once. Um, Rebecca, we don't want to put Rebecca back in the womb, do we? I mean, Rebecca's out now. She wants to stay with us forever. Um, how, how can that be? And, then, and, and Jesus sort of looks at Nicodemus with sort of an incredulous look and sort of, don't you understand? You're a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things? And he says, um, very truly, as Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And this was the verse that came to me as we were sitting there, standing there praying, and the Lord said, I want to bring a fresh wind. And that, that, whole, that whole idea that um, when you're born of the Spirit, you're a bit unpredictable. Or at least you should be. Um, as a one songwriter put it, it's a, it's a holy thing to be wild and free. And uh, 
there's a sense in which when Jesus comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, things get messed up. Yes, he brings order out of chaos, but he brings his kind of order out of our kind of chaos. And we're kind of going to look at that a little bit. But first of all, why doesn't he answer Nicodemus's straight question? Who are you? He comes out with this strange sentence, this strange paragraph. And, 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 and there's, there's a little kind of like, Nicodemus, you should know this. You should know. Well, it seems like he's referring back to Ezekiel 36. And in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel's a prophet uh, back in the Old Testament. And um, it's an amazing portion where Ezekiel is, is, is telling Israel off. He's giving them a real laying into uh, for going off to different idols and, and doing different things. And then in the middle of this, he suddenly says, uh, as the words of God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll become clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give your heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and my laws. And it seems like Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you know that passage. You have to be born again. He will bring, God has promised that he will bring that precious spirit into your heart. He's going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Nicodemus, don't you understand? And uh, this also kind of resonates with what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Because John the Baptist said this, I baptize with the water of repentance, water, clean, cleansing, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so we've got this spirit and water thing happening again. So we've got in Ezekiel, we've got water cleansing, and then we've got the spirit bringing life and newness. And John the Baptist refers to Jesus. So perhaps he read Ezekiel 36 too, probably. It's not the only place it happens. So yes, Jesus was answering Nicodemus' question. Because Nicodemus was really saying, are you the Messiah? And Jesus is saying, yes. The time has come. The time has come to be born again. The time has come when instead of having hearts of stone, you're going to have hearts of flesh. Instead of just thinking with your mind, you're going to have the mind of Christ, as, we, as Paul puts it later in Galatians. You're going to have the Spirit of God dwelling inside you. But for a Pharisee, that would have been really tough to hear. Why would it have been tough for a Pharisee to hear when he's looking and expecting and wanting? Well, the Pharisees were really into the law. And the law was all about purifying the nation, making the nation clean so that God could come and create his kingdom here on earth. Pharisees get a lot of bad press and for lots of good reasons. But their hearts, in a sense, were in the right place. They wanted to see God's kingdom come but they were going about it in the wrong way, as we'll see later. Ever since the fall, ever since the fall, death entered the world, particularly the garden. And when you look at all these kind of purification laws and all these different kinds of things throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, they're about death and decay. 
They're about removing death and decay from the camp or removing death and decay from you. And this sense of belief came into being that if you touched a dead thing, the dead thing would infect you with sin. And so the, the, on the guard, the, the Pharisee who's walking on, on the road to... Um, uh, Mayus Damascus... Damascus, no, which one was it? Uh, um, Samaria, on the road to Samaria. So many roads in the Bible, aren't there? Um, so he's on the road to Samaria, and that guy gets mugged, and he's lying on the floor. Everybody thinks he's dead. All these holy people walk past. They can't touch him because they think he might be dead or dying. So they're going to make themselves unclean. And you, we would think, oh, that's a bit harsh. Surely that's more important you help the guy. But they just spent loads and loads of time being ritually cleaned and they'd off to do the temple to do sacrifices and that's for the whole nation. So, you know, but they can't touch the guy because he's, he might be dying. There's lots of uh, laws about mould and other things in the Leviticus. It's about keeping the camp clean from death and decay because death and decay infects you with sin. One of the things about sin. Uh, and yet, Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit, the Holy God, is going to come and live in you. And the Pharisee would go, but I'm unclean. How can he live in me? I am unclean. Everybody knew that if you walked into the Holy of Holies not clean, you would die. Everybody knew that if you go into God's presence not ritually clean, you would die. And they had all sorts of like ropes and things attached to people's ankles. So when people went into the Holy of Holies and they, and they did die, they could be dragged out. Because if you went in and touched the body, which was dead in front of God, you'd be... You can see the problem. <laughs> so there's a whole kind of thing going on about God's presence and uncleanliness and death and decay. Um, and yet, they'd also missed something in the Scriptures they'd missed a sea change in the scriptures. Because in Isaiah, I don't know if you remember this bit, Isaiah's a young man, and he has a dream, a vision, and he finds himself in the throne room of God. Not just the Holy of Holies, but in the throne room of God, in God's very presence. And there's all these angels and seraphims and incense and things going off and loud noises, and the temple of his robe filled the temple. It's like, and, and Isaiah isn't going, wow, is this amazing? He's going, woe is me. I am doomed. I'm going to be killed. My lips are unclean. What I say is unclean. And I come from a generation of unclean speakers. I'm going to die. But what happens is, instead of him dying, the angel comes up and he purifies him with a piece of coal. And in fact, instead of God's holiness killing him, God's holiness makes him clean. And then we see it in Ezekiel. Another prophet we mentioned already. So Ezekiel goes into this valley. He's in a vision. And he sees a valley of dry bones, dead things. Now, for a, for a Jew, that would be horrific. These bones should have been buried. They should have been given a proper burial. Why weren't they buried? There'd be all sorts of questions going on in his head. And also, I'm standing amongst a load of dead things. I'm unclean. But instead, God says, breathe, prophesy the breath of God. And the breath of God comes into these bones and he puts all sorts of, you know, rebuilds the bodies into an army. And you see God's presence coming in and bringing life. So instead of Ezekiel dying in that place, 
Life comes because of God's holy presence. And then Ezekiel has another vision about the temple, and there's water flowing out from the temple, which represents God's spirit. And as the water flows through the desert, life comes, and it flows into the Dead Sea, unclean, dead sea. And instead of it staying dead or exploding because God's presence are met on something unclean, instead of that happening, what we get is life, powerful life. All around the Dead Sea, you know the Dead Sea, it's full of salt and stuff. Some of you have been there, floated in it, bobbed up and down in it. You know it's dead, 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 dead. But in this vision, the water, the Spirit of God brings life, life, life. And then we see Jesus walking amongst unclean people, people like lepers. Now, leprosy was like horrific, horrific disease. It was uncurable. No one had ever been cured of it since a thousand years before. And one of the signs of the Messiah coming was that he would clean, that the Messiah would eradicate leprosy or heal leprosy. Now, if Paul's got leprosy and I'm a Pharisee, I touch Paul. I am now unclean. But what does Jesus do? He comes along and he touches Paul. But Paul is clean. The presence of God is more powerful than the power of sin. It reaches out and it purifies and it cleans and it brings life. Life, abundant life, eternal life. Our lovely friend David Death, the corruption of death is gone. It's been beaten. David is whole. You can imagine that. He's open, the first time he's opening his eyes, and he's going to see Jesus. How awesome. How awesome is that? So we see Jesus walking around with the presence of God on him and in him, Passing out. The lady who was, who was bleeding, she shouldn't have been in public. She should have been hidden away. But she creeps through the crowd, making everybody around her ritually unclean. Until she gets to Jesus, she touches his cloak, and she's made clean. It's not about healing. It's about wholeness. It's about purity. It's about being made clean. Because clean is life. Clean is life. It's the holy power and life of God that comes. And it was in Jesus. He walked around in it. Jesus and Nicodemus were very similar people. They both wanted the kingdom of God to come. They were both immersed in the holy word of God, the scriptures. We know Jesus knew the law and the prophets inside out. Look at the way he he explained on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Those young men walking away, thinking everything was in despair and and crisis. And yet as Jesus walks alongside them, in disguise, (laughs) they feel their hearts burning as he explains the scriptures. And and the Pharisees try to catch him out loads and loads of times. And every time, he was a winner. And then we see him 
uh, in the desert, having just been baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes on him and remains in him, he goes out into the desert, and, the, and the, the Satan tries to tempt him. And it's a bit like a, you know, a mixed martial arts cage fight. Jesus has no problem at all with dealing with Satan because he was full of the Spirit and he was full of the Word. The Word in him became life. And the enemy had no, no, no defense against it at all. But Jesus quoted scripture in the right place at the right time because he knew the word. So he was full of spirit and he's full of word. Now at this point, I'm going to do a plug for Tony's book. Please read it. It's a great book. And chapter 12 is all about how Jesus was full of word and full of spirit. It's really essential. So, moving on. I wanted to talk a bit about Paul. The Apostle Paul. Good bloke. I mean, if I take my my Bible, most of the New Testament was written by his hand. Well, or a scribe, you know, he he wrote it. Somebody scribed it. But Paul was one of these Pharisees. Paul grew up in Jerusalem. He was Paul of Tarsus, but he moved to Jerusalem when he was about five years old. And he lived with his family in Jerusalem. His father was a well-known Pharisee. And he was such an, an amazing pupil, he got chosen by Gamaliel, one of the most revered rabbis in the whole of Israel, to be one of his disciples. Paul was a man of the word. And we know he was passionate about the kingdom of God because he tried to persecute heretics who were going to destroy the kingdom of God. They were called Christians. Although at that time they were called followers of the way. And so Paul is seeing this small sect rising up as a Pharisee. We can't have this because this is going to stop the kingdom of God coming. These people are going to pollute things and cause it to be, you know, totally bad thing happening. You know, God won't come if we let these followers of the way have their way. So he asks for permission to go out and persecute them. And he's going around, and it says he's even arresting women, which clearly that must have been a really bad thing, arresting women as well. Um, And he's on the road to Damascus. He's heard there's a a cell in Damascus for these awful way people. And um, he's on the way, and on the way to get the way. (laughs) And those of you who've been believers for a while will know, know what happens a bright light suddenly shines. And he hears a voice. And the voice says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you? (laughs) He says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. And then Jesus makes him blind. Scales appear on his eyes. And he has to be led by the hand into Damascus where he prays and fasts for three days in the darkness. And then in that meantime, there's a, young, there's a guy, Ananias, a follower of the way, who's heard that Saul is on the way to persecute them and, and hurt them and arrest them. And God says, Ananias, go and see Paul. No! Go and see Paul. And Paul is prayed for by Ananias. 
and Paul is converted. And which point in that journey between meeting Jesus and Ananias praying, which point he stepped over the line and the penny started dropping, we don't really know. But this was a man who was full of the word of God, who thought he was doing the right thing because he wasn't full of the spirit. He was acting out of his best intentions, out of his own wisdom, because he'd been reading the scriptures and philosophizing, understanding the scriptures from a human point of view. And his human point of view led him to the wrong place. And then, when the Spirit of God comes on him, all of a sudden, all those scriptures of his entire life suddenly start falling into place. And he suddenly realizes that the Messiah had to come and suffer and had to be crucified and in order to rise again, in order that the Holy Spirit would come so the Holy Spirit could remain in us. And the result for us is amazing. Remember, as a Pharisee, Paul would not have known anybody who was not a Jew. And his definition of not a Jew would mean somebody who's probably not a Pharisee. A bit like me when I, when I was in the Brethren Church, you know, we were defenders of the faith. And, uh, you know, Baptists and Anglicans were, <laughs> you know. But um, Paul was very much from that kind of point of view. If you weren't in our camp, then you're not with us, you're against us. And then all of a sudden, he's completely changed. And God sends him to who? The Gentiles, us. We wouldn't be here unless the Holy Spirit had entered into Paul. And you probably wouldn't be here unless the Holy Spirit had come to live and reside in you. And if you haven't got the Holy Spirit, if you're not born again, if you're not a Christian, if you can't claim Jesus is your saviour to this morning, then you really are missing out massively. Not just for now, but eternally. I really urge you to find somebody who you trust and find out more. Paul wrote this, um, kind of that Corinthians passage. Um, I'm not going to read all of it, but for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? It's true. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Wow. At the very end of that passage, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And when I was a teacher, it was my favorite prayer. It's say, exam time. Lord, we want to cheat. We want to be cheaters. You have, we want to have your mind. You know everything. <laughs> and I, my, my students used to love praying that way because our school was a, a faith school. And uh, they used to love it. Yeah, Lord God. <laughs> I don't want to revise. I just want to have your mind. So it doesn't quite work like that, does it? Um, but here's something really important point. When we talk about the spirit, we're not talking about a disembodied ghost. We're not talking about a force. We're not talking about an energy. It's not a yin and a yang. It's not a chai or anything like that. The spirit of God is God. If, if I had my guinea pig, Shakir, on my shoulder, he likes, our guinea pig Shakir likes to sit on your shoulder, I would walk very carefully, 
because I don't want him to drop off. If I have just, I don't know, an old tea towel on my shoulder, I'm not bothered if it drops off. So my approach to what's on my shoulder affects the way I walk through life. And the more you understand that God's spirit is his empowering presence, that he can be grieved, he can be quenched, you can give him joy, you can set him free, as it were, as you believe and understand who that spirit is inside you, you'll be set free. Um, can we have that video? are the Liverpool docks. This is where the famous Titanic was dreamed up. What makes the story of the Titanic so tragic is that this huge ship was sunk forever by something that wasn't noticed until it was too late. The unseen mass of the iceberg lurking beneath the surface of the ocean should have been the captain's concern. Instead, the captain sped across the ocean basing his decisions solely on what was visible to him. When we speed through life so quickly, we don't always think about the things that are beneath the surface. We don't normally give a second thought to what is not right in front of our face. But the truth is, we see the impact of invisible things all the time. We don't see electricity, but we rely on it every time we turn on a light switch. And we can't see the wind, but we see its effects every time a tree sways in a storm. We don't see germs, but we wouldn't have so many coughs, sneezes and runny noses without them. Invisible things matter. They matter to the astronaut who counts every unit of the unseen air he breathes as his rocket leaves the Earth's atmosphere. They matter to the rock climber who desperately tries to defy unseen gravity as she hangs off the side of a mountain. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it's not real. And it doesn't mean that it's not important. When we start to slow down, we're able to think about more than just what meets the eye. And if we choose to look deeper, we'll find that there's more going on beneath the surface than we think. So the choice is to choose something deeper than what we see on the surface. The choice is to partner with the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.27 to, to, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is... What is it? Can't quite hear that. The hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, 
Bear with each other, forgive one another. If you have any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. You know, your life is sacred. And you spend most of it not here. Most of your life is not here. Most of your life is out there, wherever there is, in your workplace, amongst your friends, with your family. Whatever you're doing on a day-to-day basis, that's where your sacred life is. What stops us from being like Jesus and imparting life and power and breath of God? What kinds of things stop us from bringing that sense of purity. Well, there's sin, isn't there? We don't want to sort out our sin. We want to hold on to that grudge. We want to make sure that um, we are right in the situation, regardless of what damage it does to somebody else. We're addicted to it. It's too nice. Sin is a lovely thing, isn't it? Sin's a, we don't sin because it's unpleasant. We sin because it feels pleasant at the time. We can be too busy, just rushing around. And I think for some of us, that's a really hard thing to sort out because your life, your work, things you do. But don't be like the Titanic, heading for the, you know, missing the unseen. Or perhaps we're too rational. (laughs) Somebody said, balance is not a life without passion. If you want to be balanced, then you're going to be like Jesus. Because he was the most balanced, perfect human being that's ever existed. If you want to be balanced, be like Paul. Balance is passion. Balance is changing the world around you. Balance is reasserting a balance. Think about that. Or is it fear? I know that fear is often something that uh, holds me back. I remember... The Lord spoke to me recently about an, a neighbour was complaining about where I parked. We'd only just moved in. And um, so I didn't know the rules. And uh, so this, this lady was quite clear on telling me the rules. And as she was telling me, talking to me, she mentioned that she needed her, this space open because she was infirm and she needed friends and family and an ambulances and stuff from time to time, which I perfectly understood. And the Lord said to me, pray for her. And I didn't. I still regret it now. I'm still kind of trying to get that opportunity where I can actually get to pray for again. Other times, I've I've not been. I've been brave, and I'm sure you can all think of times. But you can't lose by offering to pray for somebody. You can't lose. You can by not praying. (laughs) That's the equation. If you realise that you are a minister of God's precious presence the empowering presence of God. You wouldn't want to quench him and you wouldn't want to grieve him. 
who would want to set him free. And so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. The Spirit dictates where we go left or if we go right, if we go forward, if we go backwards. And that's a tough, tough ask. But hey, if we want that fresh wind to come in, we've got to be prepared to let God ruffle our feathers. Because without your feathers being ruffled, you'll never take flight. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, if you have word and you have spirit, if you have truth and you have life, you'll find the way. Um, Al, would you like to... As as we're just singing uh, our last couple of songs...